The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Hey, hey, welcome. Disability Law Show. We're set to go. John Scholes hosting, as always. Martin Willems is handling things on the difficult end. He's the one who answers all your questions, emails, and, of course, you can reach out with a phone call. To Martin and his team anytime. How does that go down? one 821 5900 Email help at disabilityrights.ca. Three things to know when applying for disability benefits. We'll cover that off in just a little bit. But, uh, Martin, we always like to warm things up with a week that was something you've been working on, pal. What do you got this week? Yes, thanks, John. It's been an interesting week. A few interesting claims came about. I had a discussion with somebody earlier this week and it related to um, this person has been on claim for a number of years with an insurance company and there was a disagreement as to whether he was being properly treated Um, in other words the insurance company wasn't agreeing with the treatment that he was undergoing whether it was appropriate for his condition as part of the denial um, due to the denial rather this person is now put in a place where, as with many other people, he's not receiving any benefits and he's concerned about where money is going to come from to continue on with his financial obligations. Mm-hmm. So he's contemplating or was contemplating taking early retirement. And by doing that, there would be a pension payable. Now, as is the case with many people in this situation, they don't have a copy of the policy. Now, the policy that I'm referring to is the policy that you would have, that your employer would have with the insurance company. Okay. Um, you are entitled to a copy of the policy as an insured under the co- contract, but many times people struggle to get a po- copy of the policy. The reason why I'm referring to that is in order to assess what the reasonable course of action should be, uh, it is necessary, it's imperative really, to get a copy of that policy to review what potential ramifications there could be if a person takes early retirement. In other words, they're saying to the employer, I'm now retiring, I'm going to access my pension. What does that mean? How does that affect a claim for LTD moving forward? Remember, he was already denied. So the insurance company is taking the position that it's not that he's not disabled, it's just that he's not being appropriately treated, which is another reason that they've used to deny the claim. So if that were to be you know, litigated. In other words, if there were to be a claim about this, uh, ultimately it is a decision for somebody else as to whether this person is being properly treated. And if that were to be the case, he took early retirement specifically because the insurance company denied his claim. So we would want to know what does the policy say? Do benefits terminate when somebody retires? And if not, how does the actual pension payment impact the claim Um, meaning the LTD benefit amount, because some policies may provide that pension benefits are offsets. In other words, they're deductible from the LTD benefit. But then there's also the argument to make that had it not been for this denial, this person would not even think about taking early retirement because he's now having to do it at a reduced amount. So for anybody out there listening, this comes up every now and again. If you were to think about taking early retirement or if you were to take think about taking a pension, Maybe have a discussion with one of us at our firm. We operate in BC, Alberta, and Ontario. 
and we can review the policy to just advise you as to what the ramifications would be is there a danger that benefits would end or what the offset amount would be so again this does come up every now and again it's not an easy thing to navigate especially if you don't have the policy and always you can reach out to uh, to Martin I mentioned off the top and I'll continue mentioning that that is one eight five five eight two one. 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Okay, let's get into this good topic today. By the way, three things to know when applying for disability benefits can be confusing. This should uh, clear up a lot of that. Number one, insurers will assess um, if you are attending, uh, pardon me, insurers will assess if you are attending your doctor on a regular basis. Break that down for me. You know, it's important for two reasons. The first one is always go back to basics. We have a contract in place. That is the policy. It's a contract. The policy has rights and obligations and terms. When you make a claim for total disability under a policy, there's a definition. And the definition generally is you must show that you have an illness or a condition that prevents you from performing the essential duties of your occupation. That definition may change later on, but just let's just focus on this for a moment. Mm-hmm. Other policies may have an added component to that. They may say, you must prove that you have an illness or a condition that prevents you from performing the essential duties of your occupation and that you are under the regular care of a physician. And a physician is a defined term, which generally means a medical doctor, a GP would suffice. So there are two different ways of looking at it. If the policy doesn't have attending on a physician on a regular basis as part of the definition, it will be somewhere else in the policy where they may say, we're not going to pay you if you're not attending regularly. But if it is part of the definition of disability, that's much more difficult to, for you because then you don't qualify for benefits at all. And if you do start to see the doctor on a regular basis later on, it may be that you missed the time frame because you need to prove continuous disability. So it's imperative for various reasons that you may not even qualify. And if you do qualify, benefits may not be paid for a period of time when you're not seeing your doctor on a regular basis. The reason for this is the policy provides that you have to do it. The insurance company wants to know that you are seeing your doctor on a regular basis so that the doctor, I suppose, can decide how to treat you. It's also important from the position of the person making the claim. If you see your doctor regularly and there were to be problems down the line when the insurance company says, well, we don't think you're disabled anymore, and you turn to your doctor and you want to say to your doctor, please, will you support me because I don't think I can work anymore. If the doctor has not been seeing you for a period of time, the doctor is going to have potentially some difficulty supporting the claim because you will not have an informed opinion, a a basis to form an informed opinion. So it's imperative. See your doctor on a regular basis. Quite often people would ask me, what does that mean? What is regular? It's not defined in the policy. Ideally, you would want to see your doctor maybe every four to six weeks um, if it's difficult. And of course, in the environment that we're living now, uh, there's such a shortage of doctors, never mind psychiatrists and other specialists, that it's difficult. These policies were written decades ago, right? So it, we, we did, at that time, there wasn't this huge shortage of doctors. So it hasn't really kept up with the times. But do whatever you can to see your doctor as regularly as you can. And when you do, make sure that you report to your doctor the ongoing problems that you have so that it is recorded in the doctor's notes so that if there is an issue later on, the doctor can refer to his notes and then support your claim moving forward.
Again, talking about three things to know when applying for disability benefits. Number two, insurers will assess if you are under an appropriate treatment plan. This is all. It is a sticking point, and it's always a difficult one. Uh, You know, it's like I was starting off this morning when I was speaking about the difficulties my the the person who spoke with me had because there was a disagreement as to whether he was being appropriately treated. What does that mean? You would ask, what does an appropriate treatment plan mean? Obviously, it depends on what your condition is. If it is a mental health condition or if it's a chronic pain condition or some other condition, it has to be appropriate to that condition. Just seeing the doctor regularly, but not following through with, for example, counseling or seeing Mm -hmm. a psychiatrist or doing things like that is going to become a bit of a problem for for you and potentially for the insurance company as well. So being on an appropriate treatment plan, who makes that decision? Insurance companies often look at a person's claim, especially if they've been treated for a period of time, because they may use this as a reason to deny the claim. Are you being appropriately treated? And they, you would say, but how, did you, how do you decide that? That's insurance right. Company? How do you make this decision? What is right for me? They would often say to you, well, we've had our own doctors. They've got doctors on the payroll, in-house doctors, looking at the claim file. And they may see that, well, if things are not getting better, you're probably not being appropriately treated. And that may be coming from a person who has never met you, has never spoken with you, has never assessed you, um, yet they feel in a position that they can criticize how people are being treated, where the doctor, your doctor, especially if you're seeing the doctor on a regular basis, wouldn't that be the person who would be in the best position to assess what appropriate treatment would be required for you? But again, if there is a denial on this, be in touch with us because we can look at what the policy says. We can look at what your doctor has arranged for you and what you're doing to see whether there is a claim. And generally, there is a claim. If the claim is being denied on this basis, there's always an argument to be made as to why the insurance company made the wrong decision. Now, the third one of the top three things to know when applying for disability benefits takes a bit of a right turn from the last one, which is appropriate treatment plan. This one's insurers will assess you if you're following recommended treatment. How about that? You know, this often comes into play with uh, people with physical issues. If they're okay. not following through with, for example, the doctor may say, you need to follow through with a kinesiologist. We need to put you in a rehab program. And the person may say, well, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I've already tried it. It's not working. I'm in pain. Or it may be in a situation where somebody has a mental health disorder. The doctor is prescribing antidepressants and the person may say, I don't like taking medication. I'm not going to do this. So it becomes a very, very slippery slope because if you're not following through with the recommended treatment plan, first you're putting your doctor in a difficult situation because the doctor wants to support that you are disabled and wants to say that you've tried all these things and it may not be working or you're not getting better. But if you're refusing to participate in recommended treatment, uh, that on the face of it creates problems. Of course, there may be reasons why. So you may have tried various antidepressants and they may have caused side effects because there are individuals out there who are refractory to antidepressant medication. Then you may try to counseling, something like that. You may not have funds for counseling. So it's so fact specific, but ultimately, if you want to have your claim approved, see the doctor regularly, make sure that you're in an appropriate treatment plan and make sure that you are following that recommended treatment plan. And that may be where you need to be referred to a psychiatrist, where you need to be following through with counseling. It depends on what your doctor says you should do. And then, of course, whether you follow that advice. 
Going to get into some emails after we take this uh, short break. You can always send them along. They might appear in a future show. Uh, failing that, it might come on this actual show this afternoon. Uh, today, we'll see help at disabilityrights.ca is how you send it along, help at disabilityrights.ca. And to reach out to uh, Martin and his team anytime, one 821 5900 We continue with the Disability Law Show in a moment. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And welcome back, Disability Law Show. John Scholes here. I just hosted all the heavy lifting is done by Martin Willems, who's uh, your disability lawyer, the guy you want to call. He's got a great team with him as well, always on the ball, always getting back to you and answering your questions. In fact, you could just call Martin at this phone number and have a chat. It won't cost you anything just to get some information like you'll get off the show. Every week, and that is one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. We want to send an email along. That's good. You want to talk? You want to send an email? Help at disabilityrights.ca. In that regard, Eva first uh, first up emails from Burnaby says, "Guys, uh, can an insurance company conduct surveillance on me by following me around when I'm doing grocery shopping? What about when I'm inside my house? Can they access my emails? I feel stressed that this is happening. No kidding. That's one of the main pillars of surveillance. Is they want to do that, right?" Yes, and you know what? This is such a hot button because yeah. you know, in the years that I've done disability claims, I've seen lots of files where there was surveillance done because just on a side note, when we get involved here um, and we pursue a legal claim and we're representing our clients, they don't deal with the insurance companies any longer. Everything goes to us. And on top of that, I get an entire the entire copy of the file, the insurance company's file, and I can see where the surveillance was done, what was done, what was seen, etc. And I've seen lots of different surveillance reports. But going back to this question, I understand why it is stress-inducing and anxiety-inducing. It, it, being on claim is already a stressful thing because you're dealing with an insurance company, you're feeling that there is an imbalance in power, uh, you feel that you have to jump through certain hoops, and you're feeling that you may be followed and be criticized for anything that you may do, mm-hmm. whether it is how innocent it may be. But as a ge- on a general sense, can an insurance company conduct surveillance of me following me around when I'm doing grocery shopping? Yes, they can. They can hire an investigator and follow you around. They do do that. Um, what they cannot do is access your emails. Uh, they cannot come into your house and surveil you. I've seen cases where they have... What generally happens is if, if you're saying that you cannot leave the house, for example, because you have social anxiety, sure. or you cannot sit, stand, or walk for long periods of time or you cannot lift things or you cannot you know um, drive things like that trigger insurance companies to do surveillance because they're going to see as to what they see on surveillance is consistent with what you're saying surveillance is often conducted in cases where there is what is called an invisible condition for example if you're saying you've got a mental health disorder or you've got fibromyalgia chronic fatigue or chronic pain but it isn't seen objectively on an mri or a ct scan or you know an x-ray what the insurance company is then looking at is what you and your doctor are saying why it is that you cannot work and they're also looking at you know the credibility from what they believe if there's going to be a credibility issue the way that they're going to assess this is they may conduct surveillance so let's go back to what happens 
You leave your house in the morning. You may have two little kids. You drive them to school. You may do grocery shopping. You may come home. You may be carrying the grocery bags. You may be pushing around a grocery cart in the context of having said, I cannot do certain things. So if they have a visual of you performing duties that you said you cannot do, that creates a problem because then there's going to be potentially a, what is called a credibility aspect where what you said you cannot do may not be consistent with what they see you do. Now, they're always, you know, nothing is black or white. There's always gray. It may be that you may have had a good day and you went out and you did a little bit more than what you normally can do. And then yeah. the next few days you pay for it. So when I look at cases where there has been surveillance done, I don't just look at what was seen on the surveillance because it may show something that the person said they cannot do. I also look at what was not seen. Maybe the next day the person did not leave the house because I've seen many of those cases. And then I would question the insurance company. Why was there no surveillance on this particular day when you say that your insurance investigator was out there? The reason is because the person didn't leave the house because they then had a bad day. So it may be consistent with what they say because anything that you say you cannot do, there may be times that you can do it, but then you pay for it. So surveillance isn't the end all and be all as many insurance companies want it to portray to clients or to people. And many times when a claim is denied, the person may see in the denial letter that the insurance company denied it based on what they would say, we, you were observed doing these things. And then a pe person feels very stressed, they feel very anxious, and they feel that the insurance company is right because maybe they did do something that they said they cannot do. But again, nothing is black or white. There's always gray. It may be a good day versus a bad day. So if that claim is denied on that basis, don't feel intimidated. Reach out to us. Because we can assess the situation with you. And if we believe that there is a claim to pursue, we're going to tell you that. And then you can make an informed decision as to how to manage it. Isn't it a case of surveillance a lot of times with the insurance company? Number one, it's no mystery that it's not cheap, depending on how much they, uh, they, they carry forth with. So they're going to they're gonna want to get some for their money. Really? And, and, and that can sometimes backfire. So if they take 12 hours of surveillance and they got five minutes, which they can maybe use, well, then they got 11 plus hours That'll back your argument, saying nothing really happened. No? You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. And again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It, it does happen. I, I've seen cases where the person did go out a little bit. And then for the next two, three days, they didn't leave the house at all. And that is consistent. But I've also seen cases where the insurance company did that surveillance. Of course, they didn't do anything about the claim then because it didn't support what they wanted to do. And then a year later, they did it again. They may choose summer versus winter, right? So just find a spot where a person may be a little bit more active. Maybe the weather isn't creating extra pain, whatever the reason may be. And the other thing that is, to, that is really important to speak about when, you t uh, when we discuss this hot topic of surveillance is, Online surveillance, surveillance of social media. Right, right. You know, th that is a gold mine quite often. I would use that phrase when I describe um, surveillance that interests conduct on social media, online surveillance. I've seen cases where people have posted photos on Facebook, for example, showing them mm -hmm. doing active things. The insurance company denies them because they're saying this is not consistent with what you're saying. Turns out that the person posted a picture of three or four years ago when they were more active, when they did things that they really felt good about. And this posting, it may just be a way of making them feel better. Of course, there are cases where it isn't consistent what the person is saying, and still we can have a discussion about that. But be careful about what you post on social media because the chances of there being surveillance is not minimal, right? It, it can happen. And whatever okay. you post out there, 
uh, may may be interpreted in a way that you don't like. Let's get to Allison here. Uh, chimes in from Edmonton says, uh, "Hey, Martin, I went off work and received STD benefits for four months, the maximum period. Just before the four-month period ended, I returned to work on a graduated basis and slowly increased my hours. I used to work 35 hours a week. I worked reduced hours for a few months, never more than 50% of my previous hours, but I could not maintain my hours and stopped working again entirely in February. I had initially applied for uh, LTD benefits after my STD benefits ended, and my claim was denied. When I stopped working again most recently, I again applied for benefits and the insurer told me that as I never worked a certain minimum hours uh, after the STD period ended, I do not have coverage for a new claim. I'm confused as to why I cannot claim again as I cannot work, yet I don't have coverage. That says Allison from Edmonton. What do you think? Okay, so this is an interesting one. And again, this comes up every now and again. On the one hand, Insurance companies expect people to get better and to do whatever they can to get back into the workforce. But then this happens. The person tries to do that. They push themselves. They work for a period of time. And then the insurance company may say, well, during this period of time that you did go back to work, you did not work enough hours as is required by the terms of the policy. And in that case, you lost your coverage. So you have to be extremely careful when you file a claim for disability benefits, follow your doctor's advice. If you cannot work, or if you think you can only work a certain amount of hours, consider submitting a claim for STD, short-term or long-term disability benefits at that time. So the insurer has noticed. Because if I'm looking at Alison's email here, she went off work, she was not working for four months. Mm -hmm. She received short-term benefits. Then for a period of time, she went back to work, but she was working reduced hours. Then she went off work and approached the insurance company for a second time. So after the first period, that first four months, she applied for long term. They denied her. She continued working, but on a very limited reduced basis. And then it became too much and she went off work again entirely. Yep. Now yep. the insurance company is saying, well, because of this period of time that you've been working, almost criticizing her, you <laughs> don't have coverage to file a new claim now. Which the way that I would look at this I would say to Alison, let's go back to the very first denial. When you went off work, they paid you for four months, the short term. Then you applied for LTD. You weren't working full time, which tells me that you were still disabled, but you were trying. Many policies have what is called rehabilitation provisions. So if the claim had been approved, the insurance company may have carried on paying long-term disability benefits, but would have adjusted the claim based on what is called the rehabilitation provisions. Because ultimately it is in the insurance company's interest to get you back to work. And if it means that you are going to do it on a very gradual basis, they genuinely would be supportive of that. Because the end goal in their mind is to get you back to work and get you off the books. In other words, they don't have to continue to pay you. In this case, she was denied right from the outset. But my argument would be, go back to that initial denial, and we would argue that during this period, Alison should have been paid rehab benefits. And when she went off work, she was totally disabled entirely again. So there is a claim to pursue here based on this information. I don't think it is a new claim that Alison has to file a new claim. I don't think the coverage issue comes into play. But a message here to anybody listening to this, be careful. Make sure that you look at your benefit booklet, at the schedule of benefits, because if you dip under the amount of hours that you are required to have coverage, 
and you carry on working like that for a period of time and then you go off work, you're at risk that this insurance company, your insurance company, is going to say that you no longer have coverage because you are not working the minimum amount of hours per week as is required under the policy to maintain coverage. So if you do work less than that, file a claim for disability benefits. Right. Do it, because otherwise you're going to run into trouble. Allison, appreciate that note. Here's the number to follow up, one 821 5900 Moving on down to uh, Raj Winder and uh, Kelowna says, guys, is it true that you cannot leave Canada when you're receiving benefits? What if you want to travel to get some medical treatment as the wait lists in my provinces are, are terrible? He's talking about BC. <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think? Yeah, we're all singing that tune, man. What, uh, what do you think, Martin, about leaving the province to get, at least get treatment? He's not even talking about seeing family. He's just talking about getting treatment. You know, it goes back, I suppose, this is a, a, a day about discussing appropriate treatment as well. Mm -hmm. The policy requires that you follow through with appropriate treatment. Say, for example, somebody needs surgery and there's a two-year wait list, but they can actually go over the border and access treatment and get it. Some policies do require that you cannot leave the country. Others are silent. Others say you cannot leave the country for more than 30 days. Is an insurance company seriously going to say to you that you cannot leave the country to go and access treatment that is available now versus having to wait two years for it. I'm using an extreme example now with the surgery, but think about that. You're not leaving the country because you're not disabled. You're not leaving the country to go and visit friends or to go on a holiday. You're leaving the country because you want to access better treatment that may not be available. So the advice here is, if the policy has such a restriction, speak to the insurance company. Tell them, this is what I'm planning on doing. Be upfront about it. Because if you're not, ultimately they can say, well, we should have known about this. But I don't think it is a reasonable position to deny someone who wants to access better treatment. And, you know, there's all discussion about inter-province um, travel as well, but yeah. we'll leave that for a later time. Yeah, it's like I'm trying to mitigate here, you clowns. That's what you want me to do is get off claims. So I'm trying to I'm trying to help that along. It's it's true. So make that phone call to your uh, insurance company, Regender, for sure. With that, we'll take a short break. Get to more of your emails. Send one along. If it doesn't appear for the remainder of this show, it will on a future show. Help at disabilityrights.ca. You can always call Martin and his team, one 821 5900 We continue. More Disability Law Show is coming right up. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And welcome back. Thanks for uh, thanks for standing by, hanging on. Disability Law Show. John Scholes here. Martin Willems is your guy. The lawyer to reach out to uh, to Martin anytime. Have that discussion. He's got a wealth of knowledge. Great team with him as well. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. You can also go to ltdfaq.ca. Short, concise, easy to digest notations about LTD, a variety of topics, really simple to use. Again, ltdfaq.ca. I want to move on to Letitia's email. It says, Hey, Martin, my husband passed away of an aggressive cancer October 2022. He had a life insurance policy with a large insurer, uh, which he had purchased five years ago. It took the insurer months to make a decision on the claim we submitted, which they denied. 
The insurer said that he did not properly disclose his, his uh, health history when he applied for the coverage. As far as I'm concerned, he was healthy. He did have some periodic issues, but nothing serious. His previous health issues had nothing to do with the reason he passed away, the cancer. Is there anything we can do about this? I have four children, and the shock of losing my husband's income on top of the loss of him in our lives is absolutely devastating. Wow. What do you say? Uh, my condolences, Letitia. Uh, I'm sorry that this is such a difficult time for you. Um, life insurance claims can be tricky. And just on a side note, this is we, we don't just handle LTD denied cases. We also look at life insurance denials, critical illness denials, mortgage mm. denials, and potential travel denials. But looking at a, a life insurance denial, they are often denied because of this issue. Whether the person who applied for the coverage in the first place accurately completed what is called the medical questionnaire mm -hmm. when they applied for the coverage. The reason for this is when you apply for insurance coverage, for life insurance coverage, you have to disclose your health in order to, for the insurance company to decide whether they're actually going to agree to cover sure. you, to underwrite that claim yep. or that coverage. So in a situation where you apply, you may have a number of questions that you have to respond to. They may be things like, have you ever had high cholesterol? Have you ever had neurological symptoms? Um, people may not always remember what they have had. So if you do complete that questionnaire, try and be as clear and concise as possible by providing the evidence that you can remember. If you can't remember something, maybe chat with your doctor. Just make sure that you answer the question correctly. In this instance, what happened clearly, and I don't know all the details, the Letitia's husband completed the form. Yep. He missed something. I don't know what it is. But the insurance company is now saying that they're looking at what he disclosed. They feel that he didn't properly disclose something. And if they had known about the actual issue that he didn't disclose, they would not have issued or underwritten the policy. In other words, they would not have issued the policy. They would not have agreed to insure him. But the tricky part here is, so when I explain it this way, it may sound that there is no claim. But this is the interesting part. If you have had coverage for more than two years, then the insurance company must show that you were extremely negligent or fraudulent wow. when you completed the application form. For the first two years of coverage, they have to prove that this misrepresentation, if you want to call it that, was material to their decision. If it has been in place for more than two years, then the insurance company has to prove that that misrepresentation, the point that you missed out or the, the deceased person missed out on advising the insurance company of, that they did that deliberately, that they did that fraudulently. And that's a much higher test. So if you forgot about something that had happened way back when and you did not complete that and 10 years later you pass away, how is the spouse going to know about this? So it's important if there is a denial like this to have somebody who is familiar with familiar with these types of cases, review the medical records, review the basis of the denial, and what was what was disclosed. Because I've seen people disclose, I have had x-rays of my lungs. And the insurance company would say, well, you didn't disclose, the person didn't disclose that they had emphysema. Of course, it's quite an extreme example there, but if there were x-rays of the lungs, they may have had some in opportunity to investigate it further, which they may not have done. But going back to what I said earlier, if there is a denial based on a misrepresentation, 
Again, don't be intimidated by that denial. Reach out to us because we can assess the medical records, we can assess the questionnaire and the basis for the denial because there very likely will be an argument to make. Remember, this is the last comment that I'll make on this. It is a much more difficult thing to prove that somebody deliberately misrepresented their health as it is to say, well, it happened within the first two years. It was just material to our decision. It doesn't matter what your intent was. If we had known this, we would have not uh, approved this claim. It's much more difficult after the two-year mark. Shauna is up next. Loving these emails, guys. Appreciate you, everybody, uh, reaching out. Hopefully yours appears uh, for the remainder of this show or the next one. says, if the case manager tells me that I have to start a graduated return to work, do I have to do it? The reason I ask this is I had not heard from the insurer for a few months. My condition has not improved. My doctor supports that I still remain unable to work. And the simple idea of, of it creates significant stress for me. I've been receiving benefits for three years. I struggle with social anxiety. And try as I will, I feel things are getting worse. I continue to see a counselor. And I'm worried that if I participate in the return to work program, my condition will worsen further. And I don't. My benefits will end. Can you give me some advice? Says Shauna. Thanks, Shona. Uh, you know, how often do we get questions like this? The insurance company is motivated to get you back to work. But a reasonable program, because these policies may provide that you have to participate in rehabilitation programs, which may include returning to work. Mm -hmm. It has to be reasonable, though. If you look at this email, Shona has been on claim for three years. She says that her condition is worsening. She says that she's continued to see her doctor. The insurance company hasn't been involved with her for a few months now. So where does this new plan suddenly come from? How was it decided that she's now ready to go back to a graduate return to work? Sometimes you see this happening when there is a new case manager in place or whether they had the file reviewed by some internal doctor again who feels that this may be appropriate. My advice to Shauna would be get in touch with your doctor as soon as possible. Have your doctor review what is suggested to be this graduate return to work program and have your doctor comment on it that it is in, from the sounds of it that it is inappropriate and it has the risk of worsening your condition and if the insurance company still insists that you do that that you participate in this graduated return to work when your doctor is saying you shouldn't one would think that you should listen to your doctor but get in touch with us and we can assess it with you and provide you with an, uh, some options as they are to proceed Appreciate you uh, reaching out, Shauna. Here's how you're going to do that uh, with the phone number, by the way, now that you sent the email along. Love it. Thank you so much. Phone number, yeah, one 821 5900 Again, one 821 5900 Still got some more time. We'll try to get through as many of these as we can. Send one along, as I mentioned, help at disabilityrights.ca. And you can also ask your questions uh, via your uh, smartphone, your tablet, your desktop. Go to my disabilityquestions.com. We love this one because it's got a searchable database, right? So possibly a question similar to yours has been uh, put there before and answered. You can simply read it, save some time. If not, leave it there and Martin's team will get to it, mydisabilityquestions.com. We continue more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. This is the Disability Law Show. Good to have you tuning in today. You can always reach out after the show with Martin and his team, one 821 5,900 email we use all every week is help at disabilityrights.ca. Carly, you're up next. Thank you so much. Says, guys, I would like to volunteer as uh, part of my treatment. Will this harm my claim? I've been off work due to depression, and my psychologist is pushing the idea of volunteering and giving back to others as a way of improving my mood. Got the doctor's blessing. What do you think about that, uh, Martin? 
You know, it all sounds so commendable, and, and it is unfortunately sad that people feel so, you know, stressed, paranoid even, that if they do something that they are going to be cut off from benefits. Yeah. Uh, it shouldn't be like this. But anyway, uh, remember what we spoke about earlier this morning when we said there is an appropriate treatment plan in place. There should be, and you should follow through with recommended treatment advice. So this is a difficult one uh, because everything isn't always take medication or go see this doctor or go do this type of treatment. Sometimes, especially with mental health illnesses, it may mean something like this. Get involved in the community. Do some volunteer work because getting out there, it may just make you feel better and start to make, take away anxiety and issues like that. So the psychologist here is recommending volunteering as part of the treatment program. Can Carly do this? Uh, I, I suppose yes, because that's what the insurance, uh, what, that's what the psychologist is recommending. I would think it would be a wise idea to advise the insurance company that this is what is being recommended and that is what you're planning to do. But make sure that as you do this, that it is done in a regimented way, that it is done within the confines of what the psychologist is recommending. And if there is any worsening in your condition, to speak to the psychologist about that, to update the psychologist, and to just follow through with the advice that is given. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing to, be, to follow through with this advice and to do this. Um, I suppose what the concern here at Carly's end is that if she does this, the insurance company may think that she has now improved. If she can do volunteer work, maybe she can go back to work. And that clearly is not the situation here. It is trying to do some exposure therapy, you know, to do something outside of the house, to go and do these things and hopefully to get some improvement in her condition. So I understand why there's a concern, but ultimately, you know, just take it step by step, follow through with the psychologist's advice, make sure that you report back to the psychologist. And if the insurance company were to say, well, because of this, we think you're ready to go back to work, mm -hmm. because they're clearly two different things, you be in touch with us, and we can discuss your options with you. Thank you, Carly. I'll give you the number in addition to that email you've already used, one 821 5900 Moving down to uh, Greg in South Surrey. says, guys, I applied for LTD benefits, and my claim was denied. I don't understand why the insurer is saying it's in, de in, uh, in its denial letter. The letter speaks about a timeline to appeal the denial, which is one year from the date of the denial letter, but then also speaks about a limitation period. What is the difference? Well, that is a great question, and I'm glad that you sent in this email. Thank you, Greg. So this comes a lot because when you read the insurance company's letter when they deny a claim, it will discuss, it should discuss, the reasons why it denied the claim, and then it will give you some options. It will speak about an option to appeal the denial, and then at the end, it should, they don't always, but it sh they should, they must under the legislation, advise you of something which is called a limitation period. The two are entirely different. And people get confused quite often when the insurance company puts a deadline in the appeal notice, for the appeal notice. Um, it may say, like in this instance, you've got one year to appeal the denial that we've made. Whereas when you speak about a limitation period, that's entirely different. The limitation period refers to the timeline, the time limit within which you can proceed with a legal claim, a lawsuit in other words. If you do that, you have to do that within what the Insurance Act provides. And in BC and in Alberta, it would be two years. When that limitation period starts to run, 
it's a bit you know it's a bit of a more complicated matter because it's not always simply from the date that the insurance company denied the claim it may be from the date that the last benefit payment was made and it's so important to understand this the limitation period within which you can pursue le a legal claim it runs continuously regardless of whether you are pursuing an appeal so that timeline within which they say you must appeal is not the timeline within which you must pursue a legal claim. If you're confused about where, what the timeline is to pursue a legal claim, contact us and we'll review it with you and can explain to you what the limitation period is. But remember, if you engage in this appeal process, which we do not support, but if you do, the limitation period within which you must sue continues to run. There have been cases Obviously, it was a bit different before 2012 when the limitation period was one year and insurance companies did not have to tell people that the limitation period was running. But I have seen cases where people were so close to the two-year mark, luckily they reached out to us and we got on it immediately and pursued a legal claim right there in order to prevent that two-year timeline from running out. Right. So if you, in good faith, engage yourself in this appeal process, the appeal may be denied months later, then you think it's another good thing, I'll do it again, and then maybe do it again. It is possible, it's conceivable, and it has happened, that people have run out that two-year line by appealing and not filing a lawsuit. So oh, if wow. your claim is denied, immediately be in touch with a lawyer who can review the merits of the claim and the timelines with you as well. Because remember, we offer free consultations. We're not going to charge you anything. It will help you a lot if you understand why it was denied, what mm -hmm. your options are, and what the time limits are to pursue a legal claim. Because at least that is going to lift some stress off your shoulders because the path forward may be a little bit clearer. Yeah, so one, uh, one quick question. Uh, this email says, Hi, I'm on LTD with a critical illness, and I'm moving to be near a major hospital within the same province. My group insurance is attached to my employer. Is it okay for me to move? I get why this question is asked, um, because my, my group insurance is attached to my employer. So this person is concerned right. if they move maybe like 200 kilometers away from where they used to live to be closer to the hospital. Um, that the insurance company can turn around and say, well, you've moved now. Clearly, you don't have any intention of going back to that employer. Um, it, is there anything in the policy preventing you from moving in your own province? There is nothing in that policy that would prevent you from doing so. I also don't think that there are policies that, you know, I'm speaking on a correction here because I haven't seen a policy preventing a person from moving to a different province. Moving out of the country, obviously, we've discussed that earlier. That is a big, big issue, and that should be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. But moving closer to a hospital, there's a rationale for doing that. Um, doesn't prevent you from moving back later on again, uh, closer to your, your job location if things were to improve. But if it is helping you to access better treatment, I don't see why that should be a concern. Other than the, employer, the insurance company may be saying, well, you've abandoned your position, which is not the case. And with that, we're going to uh, we're going to close it off for the day. A lot of great emails there. I really appreciate you taking the time to type them and send them in. Hopefully, yours will get on a future show. But continue to send them along. Martin and his team answer them, of course, when we're not doing this one-hour show every week. And you can do that, help at disabilityrights.ca. Another way to ask your questions uh, via your smartphone or tablet, too, is mydisabilityquestions.com. 
And then always use the phone number if you want to speak in person, have a bit of a, a lengthy chat about your situation, one 821 5900 And we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.